Hello, welcome to the New Stack Makers, a podcast where we talk about at scale application development, deployment, and management. KubeCon, Cloud NativeCon conferences gather adopters and technologists to further the education and advancement of cloud native computing. The vendor neutral events feature domain experts and key maintainers behind popular projects like Kubernetes, Prometheus, Envoy, Core DNS, Container D, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Stack Makers. Today, we are talking about Helm, the project from the Cloud Native Computing Foundation that has gained a lot of recognition for its approach to package management. It really is the dominant package manager out there for Kubernetes. And so joining me for the conversation are the two Matts. Matt Butcher, Principal Software Development Engineer at Microsoft. Hey, Matt Butcher, how are you? Doing great, thanks for having me this morning. You bet, and Matt Farina, Senior Staff Engineer at Samsung. Hello, Matt Farina, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Now, apparently you both have a Twitter account of your own called The Mats. But in your own day-to-day working with each other, you go by Butcher and Farina. So I may have to call you Mr. Butcher or Mr. Farina, but we'll see how this goes. All Whatever right, Mr. Works, Farina right? is usually referred to as my dad, not me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, Mr. Williams, I always look at people and say, what did you just call me? <laughs> um, uh, so our discussion really is giving people an update on Helm and how that, uh, how that update is really tied to the overall Kubernetes experience. And I know this has been a discussion uh, inside Deus at its very beginnings and it continues to today. I'm, I love the quote that uh, I saw, I think it might've been on a mailing list about Michelle Narali saying, we need to go from zero to dopamine in five minutes. That's a great, that's a great quote. Actually a so, principle we still use today. I remember when she first wrote it on a whiteboard in the Deus office and we, we keep that one around. So. Yeah, that that's a that that's that's a, those are good lessons to to live by, and I I hear a lot about Kubernetes. Obviously, we talk about Kubernetes, you know, day in and day out in our work. And uh, one of the things we hear about is the barrier to entry, and how it could be pretty high with Kubernetes, and how the learning curve um, is pretty steep. And there are different approaches to package management for developers to set up and compose their packages and and in the end it comes down to that zero to five minutes doesn't it, it comes down to that developer experience which also means trade-offs you got to think about you know advanced users versus you know early users helm is a very large community which means the practices may be best for a certain set of issues but not sufficient enough for others so there's a lot of weighing back and forth and this is not something unusual um, really, I think in any large community that uh, has uh, multiple constituencies uh, that they're representing. So I'm looking at how we 
uh, how you think about balancing usability in such a large community, really, uh, to provide that really great developer experience. And so, Butcher, maybe you can start with that. Yeah, I I, I love it that you uh, started with Michelle's thing because that has been a guiding principle for us for a long time. Uh, you know, early on in the project, we prioritized. Uh, three kind of classes of users and, and realized we were going to have to make choices that impacted who we served best. Uh, the the, the uh, zero to first install story has been our most important story since day one, I think. Uh, and then and then from there, day-to-day -day package management is the solid second uh, second place story. While we've always acknowledged there are going to be expert use cases that Helm will simply not be able to accommodate. A lot of times because those are the emerging ones, right? The ones that uh, uh, cutting edge uh, technologies are enabling new patterns of usage. And we realized that if we chase those that third category of things, it was largely going to have a negative impact on the first two. So we've really tried to say what we want, the stories that we'd love to hear are I just started with this Kubernetes thing. I installed, say, WordPress uh, for the first time and got it running. And now I can look at what I installed and learn how Kubernetes works from there. We love to hear that story. That just makes us happy every time. And, and we can tell from the usage patterns we see, from the interactions with the community, from the 2 million downloads a month, that we're really capturing that second story, which is good, because that's where Kubernetes really is right now. The second story is, you know, for day-to-day -day ops, for the 80% case, Helm provides the core set of tools that operators need in order to manage a cluster. So we're very happy to know that that we've really captured most of that group too. Um, and and while we do, I mean, Matt, I'm sure will readily join in here and say we we know there are edge cases that Helm doesn't handle. Some of them we know we probably will never handle. Uh, but we have made those decisions strategically to try and make sure that we're serving those first two groups, um, uh, you know, to our utmost. So, so Farina, Matt Farina, what are some of the deeper problems that you were trying to solve in the early days compared to the deeper issues today? What are some of the differences in those deeper problems? Uh, some of the problems are still around. So in the early days of Kubernetes, um, you didn't have that many resources and it was complicated to install something. You had to deal with things like, um, what is it? Replication controllers and many of the things that we take for granted, uh, the workloads API and things like that, they weren't there back then. And it was hard to fit your application into what was there and make it work. And, and then to share it and have other people install it. Now Kubernetes has a different problem. We have many resources and many objects. At one time, uh, at Kubernetes 1.13, I took the Kubernetes API and I reduced it down to just the uh, resources you would use in, in working with applications. And then just the latest versions of that, not, not any of the older ones that were deprecated. And I printed it to eight and a half by 11 or A4 sized pages. <laughs> and it came out at about 1200 pages. <laughs> Right, I thought my browser had broken because it just <laughs> sat there trying to generate the PDF. Uh, there's just so much. There's so much knowledge to know. And many people stop at just getting something going. If you go look around GitHub, you're going to see that many of the charts and many of the things that people have put out there with their configurations, they miss auto scaling or pod disruption budgets or resource limits and many of the things because they're happy to just get something going. 
And so, so I've seen the problem kind of shift to you didn't have enough and it was hard to pigeonhole something in there and make it work to now it's, there's so much that it's complicated to learn it all. And I think um, in the early days, Helm solved things one way. And now Helm allows people to create charts and improve on those and add many of those things in where somebody who goes to install that chart and use it in a cluster doesn't have to know about all those things and can still get the benefits. Yeah, and I know Matt Farina for a long time was instrumental in the development of the of the official stable charts repository, which is where I think uh, we really started to see some patterns emerging for how how to build charts. And I mean, I, Farina, I'd love to hear you talk about this because I think we really went from here's a chart with a deployment and a service to here's a chart with a whole bunch of different things that really took an expert's eye to be able to curate and maintain those kinds of charts, which I think speaks to the core value of Helm, which is uh, we can provide expert level packages that were built by uh, people like Matt Farina and the other chart maintainers and the huge number of contributors. Uh, but, but the person who's getting started with Kubernetes on their first day can leverage those and install those without having to learn all those things. Yeah, yeah. So when I started, there wasn't a lot of automation or documented best practices or even general practices that were useful or good. And um, charts at one time were just a simple replacement of Kubernetes YAML, you know, make the image configurable. And they've moved over time to allow you to encapsulate business logic around the applications, to have configurable features that somebody can turn on and off by setting an enable flag when they go to install something. We've got more business logic and complexity, and we can now expose more of the application to those users who are going to install it instead of exposing more Kubernetes to them. And so where, where uh, Butcher talked a little while ago about how somebody could install it and it hits that case where um, they now can go learn about Kubernetes and what's there, that's still there. But now people who don't want to go learn all the Kubernetes stuff around a particular application can enable and disable features, and we have patterns for that that you can bake into charts. So you have this new this uh, community. How big is the community now? Do you have any way to measure that? I mean, how are you measuring the, the size of the community now? And how do you and what is it compared to before, like one, two, three, four, four years ago? Oh man, oh, I, I know the download numbers for the Helm client only through the direct downloads. I know that exceeded 2 million, I suppose with Homebrew and other package managers were probably well above that. That would be 2 million a, a month. Do you know what the latest contributor numbers are, Matt? I, I don't. And I know the CNCF put out a project journey um, not too long ago. In fact, if you go to cncf.io slash cncf-helm-project-journey, uh, they've got tons of statistics on it from earlier this year. Uh, wow. So if you look at our organization as a whole, the Helm org, we've had over 13,000 contributors. Um, and th they look at all kinds of contributions, not just code. Um, over 9,000 commits, over 14,000 pull requests. Um, what they mark as contributions, which is a wide variety of things. They don't just look at code commits. Uh, over 128,000 um, and over 1,600 contributing companies. And so there's been a lot of people who've contributed Helm. I'm just reading the byline off of this page. Uh, and, and in there, they, they talk about all of these different elements to it. Um, and, and it definitely has come a long way from those early days days where um, it was just a handful of people who started the whole thing off. 
I, I do think one one contribution that's really cool to see is when people start contributing to the documentation in different languages so we can get good language coverage. I think that's that's the tipping point at which you realize, oh, there are enough people using this now that uh, you know it makes sense to dedicate substantial amounts of time simply to keeping the documentation translated into multiple different languages. Uh, charts also, of course, fun to see lots of action there. But uh, it was, when I started to notice the translation activity, that was very, very exciting. Yeah, we, we now have work in Korean, Japanese and Chinese, I think, going on. Uh, and, and so that's just that's fascinating to me to watch. So you have a lot of companies participating. Uh, you said, I think, 1,600 contributing companies. Um, you have uh, 2 million uh, downloads a month or so. Um, yeah, I, in fact, I think in the last month in just the United States, it was 1.9 million is what I heard the other day. Hmm. And, and, and to put that in perspective, when I was speaking, uh, I got up on stage at KubeCon north america and san diego and the number was one million globally in a month and so between mm -hmm. then and now it has still grown substantially yeah, so, i think there's a that that growth curve you see the uh, on the cncf site we are kubernetes is very clearly now on that steepest part of the up ramp uh, on on growth as it makes its way into large enterprises and you know Always, to be fair, Helm is, is riding the coattails of that particular wave, right? But it's exciting to us because we're so deeply invested in Kubernetes and what it, what it offers uh, as, as a real solution to a huge problem. So happy to ride those coattails. So I'm curious on who you're seeing show up now and who you used to see show up. And I'm sure there's similarities. Um, but I would expect that in those early days, you had some, you know, I mean, we've talked to people like from Box, for instance, who were early adopters of Kubernetes and uh, companies who already had existing larger engineering teams and were always focusing on more, you know, advanced use cases. Um, but they were still beginners too. Um, are there differences in the beginners today versus uh, versus a few years ago? Yeah, I, I think we have noticed a a tremendous shift in the kinds of questions that are being asked, in the uh, even in the expectations of the users, in uh, in their overall uh, business interests. Uh, you know, early on, you tend to get uh, early adopters, right? Uh, of course. And largely, that is a group that comes in saying, okay, I, we are going to have to become experts in our target system before we can use it. And we are going to expect to have to contribute uh, a code here and there, documentation here and there, because we know we're way out on the cutting edge. Uh, anymore, what we're seeing is, uh, is people really earnestly coming in and saying, you know, Kubernetes is a new thing. We're deploying it. We're not totally sure how it works. We got the architectural view of it, but we don't understand the, the nitty gritty details of it. And the expectation is that they can rely upon us, uh, Helm really in particular, because it is supposed to be a, a gateway to Kubernetes, uh, to kind of help them understand as they go how to use this, how what problems it's going to solve, uh, uh, where where today's journey ends and tomorrow's journey begins, and they have to start learning that next phase of things. Uh, I was talking to Brandon Burns about this a little while ago um, uh, because he articulated very clearly. I was I was kind of despondent on the day, going, 
I feel like, you know, I'm being asked to explain deployments over and over and over, deployments being one of the Kubernetes types. And Brandon said, yeah, that is the success condition here. You have achieved a level of success because people don't have to understand those kinds of concepts to use Kubernetes anymore. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that moment kind of hit me. Yes, we're seeing an influx of brand new users with brand new use cases who just want to execute things inside of Kubernetes who don't want to be on the cutting edge of things. Uh, and, and it's, you know, both a responsibility really and a, and a privilege to be the ones that they choose to, to start with, right? The ones that they want to ask questions of first. Uh, an interesting thing about that is uh, the, the strain of creating a, a, a welcoming community is really, really high uh, right now, right? Because you really do want to create it where there, uh, where somebody can come in and ask a question that the others in the Slack channel say, oh, that's a dumb question. But no, you don't want anybody saying that out loud, right? Because you want to create that environment where people can learn. And I think that's one that uh, that is an ongoing challenge in all human communication and one thing we take very seriously that we'd like to see improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at the Helm issue queue, one of the things that comes in really often now is support requests of people trying to just navigate the Kubernetes YAML files that they're trying to use to create charts. And they want to templatize them and they don't understand the properties or how they work or what they can do. And so we spent a lot of time just fielding general questions about Kubernetes and pointing people to documentation and answering questions. And, and that's really not a, a Helm responsibility necessarily, but we know that they're, they're trying to solve this problem. They're trying to use Helm. They're learning how things work. And there aren't necessarily other great support channels where they can go in and have people take the time and, and point them to that. And so that, that's one of the changes that we've had to do as maintainers is just answer a lot more questions like that and help people along. In the meantime, you get a lot more people who are more advanced. So people who've been using Kubernetes and who have been using Helm for one, two, or three years. What are you seeing the differences in that group of the people who are more advanced? Because now you're, I expect you're starting to see, you know, second generations of, of, uh, of, of users. I think I've noticed two particular patterns. Actually, Farina, I'd love to hear you talk about this too, because we've, I don't think we've ever discussed this before. Um, I, I do notice that there is a plateau effect for some users in Kubernetes, right? If you are using, if you are in that 80% group, uh, at some point you become uh, fully competent in Kubernetes development. And so a lot of users we see kind of hit that and then just understand, okay, day in and day out, this is how we're going to use Helm and this is how we're going to use Kubernetes. Uh, we accept the limitations, we accept the the novelties and we're just going to go with it. Uh, so we do see a huge tier of people that, that take that particular perspective. Uh, the, the hardest ones really are the, there are always still people out there who are pushing the edge of what can be done. And uh, meeting their needs while also meeting the needs of the other group has proved to be the biggest challenge by far in Helm because we don't necessarily want the Helm command to have, you know, 50 different flags hanging off of every of, of 100 different subcommands, right? Uh, and, and they're the ones that I feel like we are probably at the most risk, I would say, of underserving. Yeah, I, I mean, so with Helm, quite honestly, we're not trying to make every user happy all of the time. We're, we're trying to solve problems for certain groups of users. And we've actually taken the time to list out the different roles somebody would have and prioritize those roles to be honest with ourselves because you can't make all of the people happy all of the time. And so we've had to kind of prioritize that. 
and and the more advanced users who who can sit down with kube control or write their own client with their own workflows and logic um they are much more self-sufficient than somebody who's coming to kubernetes going I don't know. I'm just learning this whole thing. Um, and so we spend time helping and making sure our functionality works really well with onboard people with the 80% use case. But if somebody is going to really just push that edge and try to innovate and just go wherever, you know, their heart chases them, maybe that 5% especially, uh, we know we can't go there and satisfy everybody else. And I'd actually encourage those folks to, if they've come up with a new way, write a new tool, talk about it. If it turns out to be really useful, we'll see how it fits in. But um, we can't solve everybody's problem. And, and it gets really hard. And, and since we like to innovate and write tools and do these things, you know, I feel for those folks. And, and I'll go write my own tools and workflows and things like that sometimes. But I know we can't solve that in Helm and still be sufficient for that 80% use case of nailing it. I, I would interject there and say, as... Matt and I have worked together for over a decade now, and both of us are similar in that kind of R&D, push the edge, love to live on the bleeding edge uh, aspect of our uh, development. It is hard to manage a stable project when really what you want to do is move fast and break things. What are some of the issues uh, that you're seeing crop up in the more advanced users? What are some of the things that you're seeing repeatedly come up? Uh, the one that we we have seen the most frequently and that we are attempting to address kind of now is uh, people who don't want to necessarily be constrained by what the chart developer did in their chart. So they want to pull an off the shelf chart and be able to modify fields that the original chart developer did not expose through the through template values. Uh, and we've we've made some sort of modest steps in allowing people to insert tools like customize. Customize is an excellent tool uh, for modifying YAML on the fly. And, uh, and and we're working with to try and facilitate tooling like that uh, in order to allow people to uh, sort of I uh, intercept Helm data mid-flight, modify it, and then upload it. But those are the kinds of things that where it's a, that's a really difficult problem for us to solve. And uh, uh, trying to give them tooling to do that without accidentally destroying something is, is always kind of a challenge. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a good one. Um, and, and so we've already started to layer in features like that and try to figure out how can we better architect the next generation of features just based on feedback and working through it. Um, so we're very much looking into that use case. And, and in Helm in Helm v3, Helm itself uses a, an, an internal library that others can use as well. And so when people have um, those more complicated uh, workflows, they can write their own clients built around charts as well. And so we've made that capability and some people are taking advantage of it and giving us feedback. And then we can work in the API, which we can't make major changes until Helm v4 because we follow semantic versioning because we're very much about stability in that realm. But we're giving people more the ability if they wanna go other places with it and still work with Helm, we're trying to give them the tools in order to change that, either the charts on the fly or workflows in the Helm client. Yeah, and I think one one final uh, kind of cutting edge thing that I would talk about was the the, the push earlier on to have uh, OCI registries like Docker Hub be places where you can store and manage charts, uh, and that's another one that we've uh, we accepted PRs very early on to add some experimental uh, flags around that kind of behavior, 
but it's interesting to see that particular one develop as again that's one of those kind of the, the avant-garde in the and cloud native ecosystem is starting to say how do we take oci registries which are widely deployed right docker hub uh quay and things like that how do we take uh, those and store more than just images in them. Uh, and and uh, we've tried to enable some level of experimentation inside of Helm without having that experimentation bleed over into the day-to-day -day, uh, workflow of people who just want the stable old-style repositories. That's, uh, that's a, those are interesting challenges. I, you know, and it shows the, you know, the uh, relevance of OCI to this day. Uh, it was one of the uh, earlier open source projects that really focused on the container itself. And it makes you wonder, what are some of the new open source projects you could see kind of emerging that would be outside of the Helm boundaries, so to speak? Uh, Helm, file, Helm file is one of the ones that we've recently took it, uh, taken a really close look at. In fact, we've even talked here and there about incorporating that under the Helm uh, project itself because it's a tool that builds uh, a new layer of sort of uh, uh, orchestration and automation around Helm. So Helm's a package manager at core, uh, but you know we're all familiar with Chef and Puppet and systems like that that have allowed us to orchestrate at a much higher level. Uh, it's been fun to see tools like Helm File uh, or even early on tools like Armada uh, that have come out there and built additional layers around how yeah. one deploys uh, you know, a fleet's worth of uh, Helm charts or of Kubernetes applications um, and, and ties those all together. Yeah, and, and you can actually see because, as you point out, package managers can be used as a building block with Chef, Puppet, um, Ansible, those kinds of things. And you, you see those same things with Helm now. And so if you take the converse view, you might have something like Flux. That's another CNCF project that incorporates Helm in order to use an operator-like model to deploy applications into your cluster. And it's using a package manager, not in the push model of pushing packages into clusters, but using that pull model to pull data configuration changes and then deploy them, which reminds me a lot of how Chef has done things. Yeah, Flux, Flux is a great example because they've been pushing the GitOps model, which I think is a very powerful model uh, and have been I really admire the way they've been kind of pulling in best practices from all over the cloud, the emerging cloud native ecosystem and really working hard to uh, sort of canonicalize those so that uh, you have a tool that that just automatically provides this sort of best practices experience and uh, their Helm, uh, Helm integration of the Helm pattern and the operator pattern, I think is a very profound uh, feature that Flux offers. Okay, so then when you're talking about operators, since you brought it up, uh, can you help provide some clarity on how you compare Helm and operators? So uh, Helm and operators uh, is an interesting thing. Helm's a package manager, and for a long time, people have actually been installing operators using Helm, right? So you can take an operator, package it up as a chart, and then pass it off to other people to install it. And that's been happening for a long time. Now, there are other tools out there, uh, such as OLM, the Operator Lifecycle Manager, and in being able to install things, they're kind of along similar lines because you can install and manage the operators in your cluster. But then operators can be used to do things like put a SaaS in your cluster, a software as a service. Say you want Postgres as a service in your cluster. And that's something you're not going to do with Helm, but somebody could take a Helm chart for Postgres and install an instance of it. And some of this gets into management and capabilities. For example, to install an operator into your cluster, you're using CRDs and you need to have permission to install those. 
And we're increasingly seeing people who don't have that permission. It's an operator of the cluster's job to be able to do that rather than somebody who can install a workload in it because you don't want everybody who can install and run workloads in your cluster to be able to change the API service on a whim um, for security, for stability. Many organizations have compliance and they just, they can't give that access out, but people want to be able to install things. In fact, some of the way we crafted Helm 3 was to be able to install charts into clusters without needing any extra special permissions just to your namespace, uh, which was a problem in Helm 2. And operators often run into those. And so you, there are certain things you can do that are overlapping and some that are different and some that depend on what you want. Um, and then you got to look, because there's a lot, I've run applications in clusters for years now at this point that were fine with a deployment or a stateful set, and I never had an issue. But other times you don't, don't just, you may not want to SAS, but you've got to codify your runbooks. And an operator is a great way to codify what was traditionally in runbooks and then automate it. So if it's a, you know, Saturday night and you're not there to respond to an outage, your operator can handle those things very quickly. Now, this gets into the custom business logic for those applications that you can't bake into a deployment. So sometimes you need one, sometimes you need other, and they complement each other because an operator really is another application. And some of these operators are now over 50,000 lines of code and you need to test them. You need to deal with their own bugs and their own complexity. They take up resources in your clusters. And so you need to say, what's the cost benefit analysis of actually taking the time to have this and to run it and to use it in my cluster? And then when should I install something with a, maybe a chart instead? Or maybe when should I learn the business logic for this dependency and take my time to create my own Kubernetes resources and, and, and do things my own way, other than maybe getting a chart from somebody like Bitnami, who traditionally packages things up with useful configuration to share. And you got to kind of make that analysis of what's right for you and what do you have to do there? And I, I, it's natural, I think, that people confuse uh, what operators are trying to do and what Helm charts are trying to do. Uh, I've kind of recently started uh, started articulating what we see as the difference really in being uh, following the kind of cloud native lingo of a day one versus a day two problem, right? The day one problem is how do I get this thing installed in my cluster and how do I check and make sure it's running? The day two question is, you know, what do I do when things start breaking? How do, or how better yet, how do I prevent things from breaking? Uh, how do I handle these cases where I get 10x the traffic uh, in an unexpected event uh, you know, and, and how do I manage scaling that when it happens at three in the morning? And operators have been, they're really a, a paradigm shift in terms of the way we manage software, because we've always in the past said, well, you got to have a human sitting there watching all these events so that they can intervene whenever anything like that happens. And as Matt said, you know, this idea that we could encapsulate the runbook and say, when these events happen, uh, the logic can just say, okay, I'm automatically going to do this. I'm automatically going to react in that way. That's really profound. Uh, but those are two different problems, the Helm problem and the, or the day one problem and the day two problem. And I, there's no reason why, uh, in my mind, one would say, well, we can only do the day two problem. So operators are the only thing we're going to use, or we only care about the day one. So we're only going to use Helm charts. All enterprises really care about both of those things. Uh, so I'm, what I, what I hope is that we're going to continue to see the trajectory we're seeing now, which is the two of these things sort of work closer and closer and closer together uh, until, uh, you know, ultimately we ideally get this kind of day one to day end sort of story all together, even if it's composed Unix style with a dozen different tools. And we're starting to see tools that start to do this. 
One of the newer projects to the CNCF sandbox is called Kudo, uh, which is designed around operators, but you can actually use Helm charts as your starting point to do this, and then layer in some of that business logic alongside the chart. And so we're starting to see some combinations of these on the bleeding edge here. Mr. Bezos, you're muted. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 is what, <laughs> what is so new about what is, what is so new about Kudo? What is it that uh, that this speaks to its uploading edge? Well, it's just a new CNCF uh, sandbox project that's trying to do things in a new way, right? It's taking the operator concept, but it wants it make it to make it easier to create operators, which, quite frankly, is hard, right? I mean, if you're going to make an operator and some people have done them that are 50,000 lines, that's hard to do. It's a lot of time to write and test that and then to share those things, to maintain them. It's a lot of work, not just uh, on the person who has to build it, right? And so they're trying to come up with simpler ways to create these things, which I think is a really useful problem to solve because many of the people who've done that manual runbook work over time aren't your software developers who are going to get into the logic and testing of other things. There are people who picked up a runbook, followed manual steps, and they may not have been software experts. So how can you combine their expertise and their knowledge of runbooks and applications into tooling that can more easily build, you know, more easily build these operators? It's getting into that problem space. And so it's easing it for the work for a certain class of people and speeding up um, their processes. And so uh, that's kind of where it's cutting edge. And, and I'd really like to see more from them and to see where it goes. Moving uh, a little bit backwards, I'm curious on your move from Helm 2 to Helm 3. And I was sad to see Tiller go just because I love the word Tiller. I think Tiller is one of the great words of our nautical vocabulary. Uh, but what are the approaches that you're seeing being made uh, you know, when people are going from Helm 2 to Helm 3? What are the approaches they're taking? Yeah, yeah. So. Um, Helm V1 didn't have Tiller or a server-side component. And this is before, I think, deployments, definitely before secrets, all of those things. And then Helm V2 came along, and, and Helm V2 took Helm, which is now called Helm Classic, and a project under Kubernetes called Deployment Manager. Um, this is before Kubernetes was even in the CNCF, and Deployment Manager had this server-side component. And so when they combined, that server-side component was named Tiller in the nautical naming of things. This is before RBAC or secrets or many of those things were even a thing. And so as those um, resources and those concepts got built into Kubernetes, the way Tiller worked became an increasing problem um, for security and authentication and authorization and those kinds of things. And so with Helm v3, by removing it, we actually simplified the way everything worked. So you can use your normal credentials for authentication, authorization, and everything else. We simplified the workflow. Uh, and it actually simplified Helm's code base by almost half um, by removing complexity. And I think it's a good example of, you know, we live in a world where quite often we add complexity to applications, more complexity and more complexity. We actually solve problems by radically reducing complexity in code. Um, and so that was one of those great things with it. But along the way, we, we made a number of changes, right? Uh, Helm on your local system stores configuration in directories and in Helm v2, we use the .helm directory to store things in. Well, if you're on Linux or Mac or Windows, you're actually gonna find their standard places you store those things. So in Helm v3, we use those standard, those normal places. 
And so to help with some of these migrations, we actually produced a plugin. It's called Helm-2-3. You can go find it on the Helm GitHub org. And it'll, for example, move those local files or copy those local files from where they were to their new locations. So your configuration moves along to Helm 3. And yet we're able to work in a more standard way with the operating systems out there. And then in cluster, we store things differently. Now we store them in secrets, which are accessible to lots of folks. And they're typed secrets because in Kubernetes, uh, you can actually have type information around your secrets. And in order to migrate that, the Helm 2 to 3 plugin again, will go ahead and migrate that information for you. And it does it in that very conservative way. You can do a dry run to see what would happen. You can do a migration from two to three while keeping the two information around. So Helm two could still manage it. And then you can check it out. Did it actually migrate right to Helm three? And then if it did, you can run another command and clean up that Helm two information. So we make it a step-by-step -step process. So you can you know, see, does it really work? and actually check it did work, yes, before you clean up the old stuff. But we've actually automated it through a plugin and it's not baked into Helm itself because it's one of those things that once you're done with Helm 2, you don't need that code. You don't need that code path. You don't need that extra work. And many new people are approaching Helm and just Kubernetes in general right now. And they never needed Helm 2. And so they never needed that. And so we, we did it as a plugin that you can use Helm plugin install to get and then work through your migration steps. And as a writer to your initial observation, Alex, if you had told me six years ago that I would have a nautical dictionary so that I could look up all those word, all these words for the for my day job, I would have laughed at you. But now, as a landlocked Colorado resident, I still know what a poop deck is. <laughs> well, I'm not on mute this time. You can hear my laugh. Um... <laughs> no, just just as a note, we will not be releasing a product named Poop Deck. <laughs> Good for you. I'll wait to see what the product is then. Well, you know, um, you you wouldn't, you know, I guess in you know in, in this world, you wouldn't want to have a product that people would just call poop deck without it without the real name. So you can avoid that. Um, when I'm uh, when I'm thinking about uh, Kubernetes, uh, just in conclusion to our discussion here, I'm thinking a lot about security. Uh, we, we hear a lot of discussions about security and the postures uh, that are being taken. And I think it's one of those concepts is a bit abstract because it comes down to best practices really. And it comes down to just discipline and, and just doing the very basics, which is often the best wall you can build around you to some respect to like protect yourself. Uh, so, um, I'm just wondering, what is your, how do you see Helm's security posture evolving? How do you see it uh, uh, developing? And so we, you can protect these new users who will, you know, they're like little trout, so to speak, you know, like they're very skittish. They're not going to, they're, they're going to, they're, they're going to swim away real quick if, uh, it, you know, if they don't, if they don't trust it. So how are you going to maintain that security and how are you, and how is the security posture adapt ad, adapting to these new times yeah and uh and so here i have to on, shout on how out we take oh go ahead <laughs> well i was actually going to say on helm we take security uh pretty seriously right so uh, we have uh for example we've long had a mailing list you can email with security issues and you can pgp sign whatever you have to send it to us right we understand that you need to take security seriously and we respond to that list um, 
pretty quickly with our turnaround time. Uh, we also have had security reviews. And so last year we had a security review um, that actually uh, found fewer issues than I expected um, because I always expect security issues in any piece of software out there. And so we were able to fix the minor issues we have and just have a good evaluation of our process. Now this security review was of Helm 3 um, and it showed that we are doing it, but we take active steps. We're always looking and thinking about things from a security angle. And so there've been a number of features, for example, that people have proposed recently where we have said, uh, that's probably not a good idea because here's where it could potentially be used to cause security issues for a chart consumer. And we've had to kind of say no to those features, even when some of the more advanced users wanted them, because we could see how that impact could be used to hurt somebody. And we look at things and evaluate everything from a security standpoint. And I think CNCF here has done a phenomenal job of enabling the projects in CNCF to uh, to learn and grow on the with a security mindset, right? Uh, and so Helm is in the middle of a new security audit uh, as part of our graduation, um, and and I know all the all the graduated projects are going through a new round. Uh, and a lot of the outcomes of this, I mean, coming into this, we had completed very a very successful security audit. Uh, we had put together a number of security documents. Uh, you know, uh, both Farina and I take this stuff very seriously, um, uh, but. I, I'm excited because I think that what you'll see coming out of Helm in the next six months or so will be a, a very substantial treatment of, uh, of of our security posture, of our threat diagrams, uh, things like that, as we've partnered with uh, with Trail of Bits, who's auditing the Helm code base and is helping us produce uh, top class security documentation. And why I think that's, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to kind of internally uh, congregate together and, and with our heads in a huddle, we're going to increase Helm security. Uh, what I'm excited about is that one of the things that we're doing that we hope to be able to do in this next six month window is turn outward and say, hey, all you enterprises who need to evaluate where Helm fits into your security model, let us help you out by giving you uh, threat diagrams and some models here and how we tested things uh, so that they can then integrate this into their security posture and their security analysis. I'm really excited that CNCF, I think, is doing a great job of enabling all of the projects uh, to to be able to accomplish things like that. Because if cloud native is really going to be the success story we need, there are these security uh, uh, pre best practices that uh, and regulatory compliance issues that we all need to figure out how to solve in in you know to a T, right, to a very high degree, a very high standard. And uh, and that's that's a turn I'm seeing uh, happen right now across the board, and I'm very excited about that. Yeah, and and I'm reminded. So there's the uh, what is it? The infrastructure initiative that all the CNCF projects get into. That's under the Linux Foundation. And as you go towards silver, you have to do a um, uh, what is it called, uh, Butcher? The security assurance case, right? Yep. yep. Um, where you actually look at the even the security posture of how Helm is developed. And that's one of the things you did, Butcher, um, earlier this year was actually looked at how do we build things? How do we release things? You know, we even do things such as we do PGP sign our releases so that way you can verify them on the other side. Um, but how do we go about the process of doing things so that it's documented, it's understood, and we can think about it from that security angle, which gives us an opportunity to see what's going on, to process it, and then to try to improve on it to improve that security posture. 
Yep. But nothing encourages a growth mindset like security because it is an ever-evolving field and the challenges are tough. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm learning every day on that one. Yeah, no kidding. Um, well, thank you both for your time. I guess in conclusion, I just want to ask, you know, I, I got to say hats off to the CNCF. I think they've done a, a, rem a rem remarkable job over the past few years. And and I was really encouraged to see Priyanka uh, Sharma named as the general manager there. Um, and it shows kind of the organization's, you know, efforts to look forward. I'm curious what you guys think of think of that in terms of the CNCF and, and, the, and, and the job it's doing. I think from a security point of view, you see it as, as, as being effective. I'm curious, too, from any other point of view that you see it being effective, uh, you know, such as inclusivity. Yeah, I yeah, think so. Oh, go ahead. So when I look at that, I'll go ahead. So the CNCF, um, my hat's off to them, especially the staff who does the everyday work with projects. Um, the, the, so if you're consuming a project, especially if you're an enterprise, you want to know something is stable, it's solid, that you can trust it. And so the CNCF has worked to try to um, put requirements in place and make sure projects go through that requirement so you know where they're at. And then you can relate it to your level of trust. But along the way, they don't just put requirements in place. They try to help you meet those needs, right? So they, if you're going to have an outside security analysis, that takes funding and organization and things like that. They do that. Um, if people are going to pick up and use your stuff um, to you actually understand it, to, to get to that fun in five minutes, right, to actually accomplish something quickly, they need clear, concise documentation. And the CNCF has people who go work with projects to try and help them sort out that documentation and, and get it into good shape so consumers can figure out how to use their stuff. And they work through these different things to actually help projects and provide for them in guidance, in connecting maintainers together, and in tools and resources to help build those mature projects so then enterprises and just companies in general can feel secure in using them and be able to figure them out. Yeah, to that, I think I could really only add that uh... You know, it's easy to be reductive about the role of of an organization like CNCF and say, you know, really, at the end of the day, it's just an IP holding ground so that we can collaborate as different companies without uh, without running high legal risk. And, and that that is true. It is a huge boon in why these kinds of foundations get started. But CNCF has done a remarkable job of really uh, helping shape a community and helping shape a, a core attitude. Uh, you mentioned a lot of their a lot of their diversity um, emphasis has really it's been great because it plays out over a broad number of projects, right? And and we all embrace this a core code of conduct and a core set of of values when it comes to important things that have nothing to do with code, like human rights. Uh, and and you know, there's always a little bit of a a trick to balancing this one, right? Because uh, as an international organization. There are a wide variety of opinions you're going to get here and there. Uh, and I've really hats off to them for all the work they have done tackling some very, very difficult problems there and making that part of a core of their core values alongside just being a good steward of intellectual property. Great. Well, that's that's wonderful to hear. And uh, so I really appreciate that that insight and feedback. Uh, the KubeCon event is coming. The KubeCon event is coming right up. I've been corrected a few times on my pronunciation. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing you there. We're going to have a virtual booth, so I hope you'll have the chance to stop by. 
uh, and then and any of the the listeners out there uh, will be at KubeCon, and there'll be an interesting, I think, set of discussions there that will follow up, I think, on discussions around Helm and the developer experience and continuous delivery and new projects, you know, Flux, Argo, CUDA, is that it? CUDA? CUDO, K-U-D-O. CUDO and, and, and the rest. And so great job in the work you've done with Helm to the two of you and all the people involved there. Um, the dopamine effect, I think, is definitely uh, is there. So keep 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 up the good work, and look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Listen to more episodes of the Newstack Makers at thenewstack.io/podcasts. Please rate and review us on iTunes, like us on YouTube, and follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. CubeCon. Cloud NativeCon conferences gather adopters and technologists to further the education and advancement of cloud native computing. The vendor neutral events feature domain experts and key maintainers behind popular projects like Kubernetes, Prometheus, Envoy, CoreDNS, ContainerD, and more. 